0: Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and the privilege that it is for us to come and to open it and to hear what you have to say to us. We don't have to guess at what your will is, Lord, because you have revealed it to us. We don't have to search far and wide to figure out who you are and what you require of us and what you've provided in order to save us. We can... Just open up this book and read and discover what you have done, Lord. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts this morning to get to know you even more. Lord, we pray that through the preaching of your word that you alone would be glorified and that by your spirit you would build up your people, Lord, that you would make us who you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open to Hebrews chapter 12. We're looking at verses 3 through 13 this morning. Let me just go ahead and read this passage for us before we start looking at it in depth. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. For consider him who has endured "'Such hostility by sinners against himself, "'so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. "'You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood "'in your striving against sin, "'and you have forgotten the exhortation "'which is addressed to you as sons. "'My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, "'nor faint when you are reproved by him. "'For those whom the Lord loves Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed." The preacher, he kind of continues this figure of a race and when you consider those who run competitively, whether it's in the Olympics or some other well-known race like the Boston Marathon, there's a lot of preparation involved before any one of those individuals crosses that finish line. They didn't just wake up one day after having lived off of Chinese food and decide that they are now going to be able to run a marathon. No, there's been a lot of strength and endurance training leading up to that point. They've had a coach to show them the most efficient way to run. And they've had someone training them rigorously, And they've trained with other runners who've pushed them to make them better. And there's also people at the race itself who are ready to administer medical attention as well as those who have marked out the race course and they've cleared the way so that there's no obstacles for the runners. There's a lot that goes into it. And it's even more so the case when it comes to the race of faith for believers. This race that we've been considering here in Hebrews 12. And in verses 3 through 13, we are going to see, just as runners in a physical race need strength, and they need preparation, and they need help, we ourselves in this race of faith, we need sources of strength. And in this passage, we find three sources of strength that we need to draw upon in order to complete this race. Two weeks ago, we studied verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. And in verse 2, we saw how Jesus is our great example of what it looks like to run this race, to walk by faith, which he did perfectly. And in the next two verses, verses 3 and 4, the preacher, as I mentioned, keeps our attention on that theme. And in this section, the preacher is Encouraging us to consider a certain aspect of Jesus' suffering. Now, when we think of Christ's suffering, what do our minds rightly automatically think about? We automatically think about his sacrifice for our sins. And indeed, the preacher drew our attention to that aspect in chapters 7 through 10. We went all through that. But here, in chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, he's calling on us to consider an additional aspect of his suffering, that of his being an example to us as believers of how to suffer. Verse 3, he says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's here that we find our first source of strength that we need to draw upon. We need to study the example of Jesus. We need to consider him. And we need to consider something in particular about him. We are to consider the great hostility that he endured at the hands of sinners. Now, these Hebrew believers that the preacher is writing to, they have experienced great hostility against themselves by sinners. We saw that back in chapter 10. And they are facing further hostility from sinners against themselves. This is the pressure point in their lives through which they are being tempted to quit the race of faith, the hostility of sinners. They've been bombarded by the waves and the tides of life to the point that they are in danger of subtly drifting away from the hope that they have held on Christ. Their hearts are in danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They seem to not be as quick to run to God's throne of grace as they had before. They've become dull of hearing and they've grown sluggish. They may have begun thinking thoughts like this, Ah, I'm just so tired of all these difficulties. I just don't know if it's worth it to follow Jesus anymore. Or, it's too hard to fight this temptation any longer, so I'm just going to give myself over to it. Surely God is going to forgive me. Or, my heart just isn't in this anymore. I have nothing left to give And apparently, God is not going to enable me to overcome this, so what is the point of continuing to struggle? Are you entertaining thoughts like that? Those are the thoughts of someone who's on the road to apostasy, to quitting the race of faith. One of the most exclusive groups of the military are the Navy SEALs. And the training that they put recruits through to determine who is fit to be a SEAL and who is not is incredibly difficult. I once watched a video where a Navy SEAL was asked if there was any way that you could tell beforehand which guys would make it through and which guys would not. Which ones would be able to get past the screening process and this man he was a man who had gone through the training he had become a navy seal and he had put those uh, those tasks that he had gained through that training to use in actual war so he knew what he was talking about and he said that being the strongest guy or the fastest guy or the guy who was in the best shape those were not reliable indicators of who was going to make it through the training or not It was the guys who simply had the mindset that quitting was not an option. It was those guys who made it through. They were either going to complete the training or they were going to die trying, but they were not going to quit. Those are the guys that made it through. You could be the best physical specimen out there, but if you even began to entertain thoughts of quitting, you were not going to make it. Through the screening process. So, this SEAL, this guy, he's, to me, that would be valuable insight to anyone considering becoming a Navy SEAL. You adopt that mindset and you'll make it through. You know, endure or die trying, but don't quit. And that is what Jesus does for us. He is the one who has run the race of faith perfectly. To the end, enduring a shameful cross, and he's shown us how to run it. How did he run it? Verse 2. He endured for the joy set before him. That's how he ran it. So you and I, we run this race by keeping our eyes on the joy set before us, as Jesus did. And what is that joy? It's the joy of spending eternity with him. A joy that is so great that a lifetime of suffering does not even begin to compare with that joy. Jesus, God the Son, He ran the race of faith as a man, by faith. He crossed that finish line and as the author and perfecter of faith, He will enable us to cross it as well. So when we grow weary and we begin to lose heart and those thoughts that I mentioned begin to creep into our minds, we need to consider Jesus, how he endured, how he is now experiencing the joy that he lived his earthly life seeing by faith, and how he is going to enable us to enter into that same joy. We need to study Jesus. And sometimes, when those thoughts of giving up following Christ those thoughts of quitting, when those thoughts enter our minds, sometimes we just need a good old-fashioned kick in the pants. And that is what the preacher does for us in verse 4. He says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. When we become obsessed with ourselves, and with our own comfort, and when we grow weary in doing good, I fall into that all the time. And if you see me falling into that, you need to ask me a question. Or if I see you falling into that, becoming obsessed with self, with comfort, growing weary and doing good, I need to ask you this question. Are you still breathing? Is there a drop of blood still in your veins? If so, then you have plenty left in the tank to fight sin with. To give up while you still have breath in your lungs is to abandon the Lord Jesus. There is no excuse for it, none. That's why the preacher says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Listen, the Lord in whose footsteps we are following was crucified on a Roman cross. We are following him. And if he, the sinless son of God, learned obedience through the things that he suffered, Romans 5, 8, then who are we to think that we, a sinful son or daughter, should be exempt from suffering? To follow Jesus is to be willing to be crucified ourselves. Is that not what our Lord said? Unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of me. We must fight sin to the death, literally, until the last breath, until the last drop of blood is spilled. We need to be willing to take up our cross every day, die to ourselves every single day as we fight sin, and we need to trust that our Lord, who was raised from the dead, will be faithful to raise us up from the dead when we have given our lives in the fight against sin. Whether it's tomorrow being martyred or decades from now dying of old age, the fight against sin doesn't stop. As a Christian, you fight it to the end. There is no giving up. There is no woe is me, time to quit. There's none of that. And we learn that from Jesus. If he said, oh, this is too hard, we would still all be dead in our sins. We are commanded to study Jesus in order to draw the strength that we need to finish this race. The second source of strength that we need to draw on is found in our Heavenly Father's exhortation to us. You need to submit to your Father's exhortation. These Hebrew believers, they had forgotten this exhortation. They had forgotten that there was a purpose to the suffering that they were going through. This very suffering that they thought was an occasion upon which to abandon Christ was actually meant by God to draw them closer to Christ. And we can often forget that as well when we suffer. He says in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor faint when you are reproved by him for those whom the lord loves he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives the preacher he quotes from proverbs 3:11 through 12 we read that this morning in our call to worship as believers we are to view our suffering as discipline from the lord Now, discipline, it's a broad word. It doesn't always mean discipline for sin, punishment for sin. One lexicon defined discipline generally as the act of providing guidance for responsible living. The act of providing guidance for responsible living. And in John MacArthur's commentary on Hebrews, in commenting upon this passage, he points out that God disciplines his people with at least three different purposes in mind. One being punishment, another being prevention, and then third, education. Discipline can refer to punishment. Sometimes God's discipline is punitive. That is, he chastens us so that we can learn not to sin that sin anymore. We see this in David's life when he sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba. What did God do in the life of David after David fell into that sin? He sent hardship into David's life. That was punishment for sin, chastening David as his child. Sometimes God disciplines us not to punish us for sinning, but to prevent us from sinning more. We see this in Paul's life. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul speaks of a thorn in the flesh that God gave him. It was suffering that he was enduring. It was discipline from the hand of God. But what was the purpose of it? In verse 7, Paul says, To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Why? To keep me. From exalting myself. God disciplined Paul in order to keep him from the sin of pride. And then sometimes God disciplines us in order to educate us, to grow us in our love for Him, in our knowledge of Him. We see this with Job after his suffering and his encounter with God. We see Him proclaiming what He's learned. After suffering, this great suffering, and then God Himself coming to Him. Job 42, verse 2, He says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And if we consider our sufferings, our trials as believers, I'm sure that we can see how God has brought discipline in our lives to accomplish each one of these three purposes. And when we are suffering, whether that be through sickness or financial hardship or persecution or whatever, we can often fall into one of two ditches. And we see these two ditches in verse 5. Lightly regarding the discipline of the Lord, on the one hand, on the other hand, fainting when you are reproved by Him. This first ditch is of regarding lightly or despising the Lord's discipline of us. To regard something lightly is to treat it as being of little value. So how can you know if you are lightly regarding the discipline of the Lord? Well, when hardship comes, do you give no thought at all to the fact that God is sovereign over that trial and he is sending it in order to conform you to the image of his Son? When a trial comes, do you grumble and complain because it has gotten in the way of what you want to be doing? Just like the Israelites in the wilderness, that is lightly regarding the discipline of the Lord. The second ditch we can fall into is to faint when God disciplines us. This is when hardship comes and we misinterpret it because we've take it as a token of God's indifference to us or his hatred of us or his hostility against us. But that's a wrong conclusion to draw when we as a believer experience the Lord's discipline. And verse 6 explains to us how we should interpret it. We ought to interpret his discipline as a token of his great love for us and his acceptance of us in Christ. This morning when I was in the shower and God jammed his finger into my back, normally I would grumble and complain and take it lightly. But after studying this passage, I realized that I ought to take that as a token of his love for me. He goes on in verse 7 to say, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. When we suffer as believers, we have to guard against falling into either one of those two ditches. Instead, we must endure the suffering that God's discipline of us may accomplish what he's intending. We have to endure it so that his discipline will actually accomplish what he is sending it to accomplish. If we try to squirm out of every difficulty, every trial that God brings us, or if we live in denial of it, pretending like it's not there, Then we are short circuiting the sanctifying work of God. We are robbing ourselves of the benefit of each of those three purposes of discipline that we looked at. We're either robbing ourselves of the benefit of being turned away from some sin that we have been caught up in, or we are robbing ourselves of the grace of God to keep us from a certain sin. Or we are robbing ourselves of the great joy of entering into a greater knowledge of who our Lord and Savior is. This is what James speaks of a couple pages over in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Listen to what James says. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And, and verse 4, this is right in line with what the preacher's saying about submitting to the discipline of God because he's treating you as his own son. James says, And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We need to submit to the discipline of God and let it work its work in us to make us what God wants us to be. If we don't do that, we miss out on discovering the indescribable joy that Paul discovered through his thorn in the flesh. Remember, he prayed three times to God to take it away. And what did God tell him? He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And that turned around Paul's whole attitude. He began to boast in his weaknesses because he understood that the grace of God was going to shine through even more through that suffering that he was having to endure. God's discipline of us is a demonstration of his love for us. It's a demonstration that he's accepted us in Christ as his sons and daughters. For example, my Son is at the age where he understands when he's doing something naughty. I tell him not to do something, he does it again, I discipline him and then I go away and I see him looking for me. And if I'm not looking, he just goes and he does it again. If I do not discipline him, then despite what I say, I really don't love him because I am willing to abandon him To whatever fate his sin would carry him to. Proverbs 13, verse 24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. God disciplines us because he loves us. If I'm in the grocery store and I see a child, not my child, someone else's child, disobeying his mom. And if I were to go over there and discipline that child, I would rightly be arrested. Why? Because he's not my child. I have no parental authority over that child. You do not discipline a child who's not your child. So when God disciplines us, what should that indicate to us? That God considers us to be his son or his daughter, and he loves us enough to discipline us. He counts us as his children. And if God is letting you pursue a sinful lifestyle, and he is simply letting you go your own way without prodding you back onto the path of holiness, then it may be because you are not his child. And rather than be encouraged or think that God doesn't see and rejoice because you get to keep doing what you want to do contrary to the revealed will of God, rather you should fear. We saw that in Psalm 73. The wicked typically have a life of ease and they die comfy in their beds. There's no discipline of God upon their lives. But God has put them in slippery places, allowing their sin to carry them far away. And so if you do not have the discipline of God in your life, you ought to take that as a sign of destruction that's coming. And you ought to run to Christ and ask God to adopt you into his family. The preacher, he's got more to say. Verse 9, he says, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. Typically, if your earthly father was a balanced disciplinarian, that is, that he was not abusive but yet he still held you to a certain standard, you respect your father. Much of the reason why we see so little respect for authority today is because fathers are now not any longer putting forth the effort to love their kids enough to discipline them. And when you do find respect for authority in someone's life in the background, There's usually a father who has faithfully administered discipline. And so if we respect our earthly fathers, the argument here is how much more than ought we to respect our heavenly father? Because if we don't respect our heavenly father, we blaspheme God because we are saying that he is not worthy of more respect than we've given our earthly fathers. If we obeyed our earthly father, but we do not obey our heavenly father, that then no matter what we may profess, we are not respecting our heavenly father. Not only that, but our earthly fathers were not perfect disciplinarians. He says in verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. Which implies what? That a father's judgment can be short sighted and flawed. There is no dad alive who's raised his kids perfectly. Sometimes our discipline is too harsh. Sometimes our discipline is too soft. Sometimes our discipline is not consistent enough. Sometimes we discipline our kids out of wrong motives because I want my kid to behave so that my life is easier. Or I want my kid to behave so that I look good to my friends. Or I discipline my child not out of any kind of uh, well intentions for him, but simply because I lash out out of selfish anger because he annoyed me. But that is not ever true of our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father's discipline is always just right. It's always Perfectly consistent, and it's always done with right motives and a gracious goal in mind. Verse 10 But He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. Our Heavenly Father's discipline is bringing about something in our lives that is infinitely greater than any Father's discipline any earthly father's discipline could ever bring about in our lives. Verse 11, the preacher says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We should not be surprised that God's discipline hurts. Any kind of discipline brings with it a measure of discomfort. Whether you're being punished by a superior because you've done something wrong, or whether you are training for a race, or whether you are being taught in a class and being examined by a teacher. It all involves strain and pain because you are denying yourself in order to bring about some kind of progress. And if earthly training with earthly goals involves a degree of suffering. Shouldn't we expect heavenly training with heavenly goals to bring about much greater suffering? The Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, he grabs a hold of that idea. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Listen to what he says to those he's writing to. He says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. The greater degree of suffering, the greater degree of glory. The suffering that we endure as believers is yielding, according to verse 11, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is, it is conforming us to the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What could be more valuable and more worth it than that? So we need to submit ourselves to our Heavenly Father's loving discipline. Because through it, he is enabling us, he is strengthening us to run the race of faith with endurance. So when trials come, whatever that may be, whatever form of suffering that may be, if you are a believer, you ought to take that as a sign of your father's discipline. You ought to take that as a sign of his love for you, of his acceptance of you as a son or a daughter of his. You ought to thank him for it. There's a third source of strength that we need to draw upon. And that is each other in the body of Christ. We must steady one another in our exhaustion. We're commanded in verses 12 through 13 to strengthen each other and to make straight paths for one another. In any sort of official race, there's going to be medical staff on hand. There's going to be individuals who have mapped out the race course and they've gone over it with a fine-tooth comb, removing anything that might trip up the runners. The race of faith is hard and long, and it's too difficult to run it without having someone alongside of you to help you run it. So we are commanded in these verses to be medics and trail guides for one another. He says verse 12, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. We need each other because there will be times for each one of us when we stumble into sin or when we get overcome with grief or when we encounter a fork in the road and we just can't figure out what God's will might be for us. So we need to have others running alongside of us who we can look to for help and encouragement. Apart from Jesus, the wisest man in the world, Solomon, he had something to say about this in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Listen to what he says. He says, Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. We need the body of Christ. We can't be Lone Ranger Christians. Lone Ranger Christians cannot finish the race. We need to lovingly and humbly admonish one another when we see our brother or our sister caught in sin. We need to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice so that we can encourage one another and support one another as we are running this race together. And when someone is confused and they need counsel, we need to offer counsel that is based on Scripture, not our own ideas, but on what the Word of God says. That's how we strengthen each other's weak hands and feeble knees. Because we are weak people. We need help. But we're also commanded something in verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We need to make straight paths for each other's feet. We need to be careful to not put obstacles in front of our brothers or sisters that may cause them to stumble. We need to be sensitive to each other's consciences and convictions when it comes to gray areas of Scripture and not inadvertently cause one another to go against conscience, which is sin. And we must never encourage someone to pursue any course of action or any attitude that is sinful. I was having a conversation with my wife, and I was in a little bit of a perturbed mood, and I said something offhand that was really counseling her to sin. It was just some offhand remark, but it was counsel to sin. And so I needed to go back to her and apologize for saying that. We have to be careful never to push each other, direct each other in the pathway of sin, ever. And we must not legalistically place man-made rules upon people in order to try to get them to behave a certain way when God has not prescribed that for us. We must not weigh each other down with that. There are enough obstacles thrown in our way by the devil, by the world, and by our own flesh without our brothers or sisters throwing an additional obstacle in our way as we try to run the race. We need to help one another persevere in faith, not hurt one another by contributing to someone's apostasy, someone's quitting of the race. He says we are to make straight paths so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint. To have your limb put out of joint, that's to be knocked out of the race completely. You cannot run a race with a dislocated hip. So we need to seek one another's spiritual healing instead. And if we do not draw upon these three sources of strength, We're not going to have what it takes to finish the race of faith. God has graciously given us everything that we need to run well. We have the example of Christ to study. We have the exhortation and the discipline of our Father to submit to. And in our exhaustion, we have brothers and sisters in Christ to steady us. Each one of these is essential. And so I pray that God would help us to appreciate the importance of each one of these things and that he would enable us to lay hold of them firmly. And his word has assured us that every one of his true children, he enables them to lay a hold of these things. God has never lost a single one of his children and he never will. But he's given us these means to lay hold of through which he preserves us. So let's be faithful and diligent to cultivate these things in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for showing us these incredible sources of strength that you have provided for us through which we can run this race of faith well. Lord, we thank you for the example that we have through our elder brother, our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only has he saved us through what he's suffered, but he has also shown an example to us of how to suffer, how to walk by faith, to to walk it with the joy set before us. And Father, we thank you for your gracious discipline of us, how when we sin, you are gracious to chasten us, to turn us away from that sin. And when we are in danger of, of being Lord, into sin, you are gracious to, to bring trials into our lives that, that make us on guard against that sin, that prevent us from falling into that sin. And Lord, you know how often we need extra motivation to know you more, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you bring discipline in to drive us to our Savior. And Lord, we thank you for providing us with many brothers and sisters in Christ who are there to help us and to counsel us from your word, to lovingly admonish us when we fall into sin, to comfort us, Lord. We thank you so much for the family in Christ that you have blessed us with. And Lord, if there's anyone here who is not experiencing your discipline and not experiencing it because they are not one of your children yet, Lord, may you graciously Open their eyes to their sin, to their need for you, to the glory of Christ. May you grant them repentance and faith. May they see in Jesus a Savior who is a joy worth suffering anything for. Him who has died for our sins and rose from the dead and is bringing us to himself. Lord, may you make them a part of your family. And may they experience your gracious discipline that enables them to run the race of faith.